The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. For a while, and then we'll later open up for uh, for some discussion, and uh, I'll come back up at that point. Uh, but take away with Hi everyone, thank you so much for being here. It is really exciting to have this space to be able to talk about some of the things that we're going to discuss tonight. It is, believe it or not, kind of difficult to uh, find the space to have two veterans, you know, like people claim to support the troops, but it's fairly challenging to uh, find a space where veterans can actually speak about the full scope of what they see uh, overseas and, and, and what they've done. So thank you so much for uh, coming tonight and, and making the space for us. Um, so Spencer, uh, thank you. Thank you uh, for what, you, what you've done. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor. I mean, the amount of courage uh, that you've showed uh, to, you know, in the belly of the beast, uh, to stand up and give a big F you to, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's inspiring. Um, and so tonight, you know, if there are any questions, you know, it took me uh, quite a few years to find the courage to kind of speak out about what I saw in the military. It's been like days since you've been discharged from the military. So if there's anything, you know, you don't want to talk about or you want to pass over, uh, you know, just, you know, Maybe twinkle finger. I'm not <laughs> anyway, um, so maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about your background and why you decided you wanted to join the military. Sure. So uh, I grew up uh, in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is like the classic Rust Belt city. It's about 40 miles north of Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm one of six children, uh, and I come from, at the time, a single-income family. So. I did well in high school, uh, and I probably could have went to maybe some state school or something, but I really couldn't afford it. And I was also, you know, a young 18-year-old male in American society, so I watched a lot of Hollywood movies, uh, a lot of TV shows, and it kind of conditioned you to think a certain way about the world and about what's, you know, morally right and what's the, you know, ethical thing to do. And so I decided to enlist as an infantryman uh, out of high school. Uh, but. Soon after enlisting and finishing basic training, um, going through airborne school, ranger selection, uh, I was deployed to Afghanistan, to Coast Province, less than a year later, it's right on the Pakistani border, and even though I was told I was in, you know, this elite unit with all these elite soldiers, I found myself uh, inhabiting a situation where most of the men I was surrounded by took active pleasure in killing other human beings, and dehumanizing uh, people because they have different cultures or a different religion. And uh, I was always told growing up that the United States military, uh, you know, protects, you know, the innocent. We fight for freedom, truth, and justice. And you know, it didn't take me long for me to recognize that my experiences did not reflect that in the slightest. Uh, and so uh, I was employed for the, you know, most of the summer of 2011. Uh, and I got back and I started trying to process what I witnessed, what I saw, and how I could maybe try to stop things um, from happening. Uh, and at that time, um, I had some idea of what constituted U.S. imperialism from my own experiences, but I didn't really have much political education. And I actually find that's crucial to understanding these things. Um, so I thought maybe, you know, the old adage, I could change things from the inside. And uh, I applied to West Point, got accepted into that, and then 
From there, I started to realize this is more of a structural phenomenon, uh, that one good person or one you know, person who thinks they might be morally upstanding can't affect uh, change when the system is inherently wrong. The system inherently preys on some of the most marginalized, poorest, and exploited people who are on Earth. And uh, I soon found myself trying to resolve that contradiction of um, you know, my future officership, and not only as a soldier, but having to influence you know, soldiers um, who were my uh, subordinates, having to tell them that the mission we were doing was right when I had first-hand experience as a teenager in Afghanistan that what we are doing was not right, and all we were doing was just uh, persecuting and terrorizing some of the most exploited people on Earth with some of the most technologically advanced militaries uh, in history. And so, one thing led to another, uh, and um, when I commissioned, that was when the National Anthem debate first started to happen with uh, Colin Kaepernick and such. Um, and, okay, I, I guess I'm getting too far ahead of myself. So, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the changes that you saw in the military. Uh, you served, you know, with Obama as Commander-in-Chief and as with Trump <coughs> as Commander-in-Chief. Uh, can you talk about what it's like within the ranks and maybe talk about some of the differences uh, in uh, what you saw in active duty soldiers between Obama and uh, Trump? Yeah, well, so uh, when I enlisted during the Obama era, one of, like, the prevailing themes was that, you know, the Commander-in-Chief doesn't understand what we're doing. Uh, there's obviously the casual racism you see every day uh, in American society, I guess it's a little bit more hyper-intensified in the military, just because of the, um, the, like the hyper-masculine environment, especially in combat arms. Uh, and then, um, I mean, but at the end of the day, of course, like the, the material effects of U.S. foreign policy really are the same. Uh, but when Trump was elected, there's definitely um, a noticeable shift uh, from my time as an enlisted soldier to cadet uh, to being an officer. and. Um, I noticed that whereas uh, before soldiers would always kind of feel hesitant about saying maybe things that were a little bit more blatantly racist or sexist, that with the election of Trump it kind of emboldened them uh, to, to act out in a certain way that wasn't typical before. Um, and I think that was kind of uh, reflective of something else happening in American society, whereas maybe Donald Trump himself is more of like a parody fascist and a fascist. Act. It was like almost as if that election was unleashing the forces of a new kind of um, fascism. And within the military ranks itself, that was definitely prevalent. Uh, a lot of guys were you know, getting excited at the prospect, oh, hey, maybe now we'll invade somewhere else. Maybe we'll you know, go into North Korea or possibly Iran. Um, so that, that definitely uh, marked a shift in the, uh, the tone and uh, I guess some of the, the cultural aspects of military life uh, with Trump's election. I mean, it's really amazing to think about it. I mean, we wore our BDUs uh, to kind of highlight the fact that there's actually been three uniform changes since I enlisted and Spencer got out of the military. We both fought in the same theater in Afghanistan. But there's been four presidents overseeing this war in Afghanistan. It's really quite incredible when you think about it, uh, going on 17 years. Um, so I'm going to talk about the picture a little bit. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. 
uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, <laughs> what have you been doing? <laughs> uh, Spencer is at his uh, West Point graduation. Uh, not the likeliest of backdrops for what, uh, the sign that I'm about to tell, tell you about. He held up a sign underneath his, what's that hat called? I mean, it's just a cover. A yeah, cover, yeah. yeah. And it's a communism will win on, on, on the sign. <laughs> decided to post it, it was a few months actually after your graduation, you were sitting on it a little bit, you posted it with something else. Can you describe um, what that was and what you said uh, on top of that, that image and why you decided to, to say what you said in addition to that sign? Right, so actually I was sitting on those pictures, the first one um, with communism wind inscribed in my hat and then the second one wearing a Che Guevara shirt underneath. Um, and I graduated in May 2016. I didn't post those until September of 2017, so it was actually a little bit over a year. Uh, it essentially comes down to a couple of things. One, uh, getting through West Point, uh, despite my political beliefs, uh, I was almost kicked out my senior year for espousing um, you know, a communist political line, uh, both in my writings and in just my everyday conversations. Uh, but secondly, um, I knew that if I was authentic in my political beliefs, uh, in my worldview that I wouldn't be able to continue serving uh, my full commitment. I'd have to find a way out somehow. But it's quite daunting, um, especially as an officer, because it's just not very common. Um, so I, I took those pictures kind of like as my own individual act of rebellion, but I always thought if there was ever an opening, maybe I could use these for some larger um, political purpose, because although I'm one person, sometimes individual acts of rebellion or resistance or subversion can maybe spark something uh, larger, uh, or at least serve as um, inspiration for maybe other soldiers who feel like I do or similarly uh, to take action. And so uh, that's why I ultimately decided to um, have those photos taken. Um, and the people who took those photos are rather sympathetic to me, but of course, I'm not gonna give their names right now because they might face their own repression. But yeah, that pretty much encompasses why uh, I decided um, to post them. Of course, we could get into the context of what I did. So, so yeah, what I was alluding to is you also had a Veterans for Kaepernick, you know. Oh, the hashtag. The, the yeah. Hashtag. Yeah. So uh, regarding Veterans for Kaepernick, um, so of course the opening I saw was um, one year uh, since Colin Kaepernick first decided to protest uh, structural racism in American society, uh, police brutality, though a debate was starting up again. And uh, the year before, Rory actually had taken a picture of himself at a Cubs game. Uh, holding up a sign saying, uh, you know, veterans for Kaepernick, using that hashtag, and it kind of went viral. And I always kind of kept that in my back pocket. And so when the uh, debate is starting uh, up again, and, you know, uh, Trump is denouncing Ka Kaepernick and other uh, football players expressing solidarity, not just in the pros, you know, high school and college students as well, uh, I decided, you know, this might be an opening for me to express how I feel. And maybe, uh, I know I can't see the future, I didn't expect it to get as big as it did, certainly not, but I said maybe it would gain some traction and from here I could look at uh, influencing other soldiers to do the same, or at the very least uh, find myself in a position where I would be able to remove myself um, you know, from the imperialist army and find a way to talk about my experiences to affect some type of anti-war movement. And for me, uh, the idea of veterans for Kaepernick 
would also uh, bring veterans into the fold who maybe think that they had to act a certain way or you know maybe fit a certain political line because uh, much like many groups of people in this society they're essentialized and put into a box uh, and so yeah I mean all those aspects together and, and Colin Kaepernick himself was someone who who risked his entire career uh, to speak towards a higher cause. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He could have been comfortable the rest of his life, but he put some skin in the game and he was completely lambasted for it, ostracized from his his uh, passion, and he suffered for it. And I was like, well, this is the least I could do if I'm uh, authentic and true in my own beliefs. So if you don't mind, maybe you could talk about some of the fallout that happened, some of the repercussions that you felt, uh, not only within the military, but from the right-wing media, um, maybe some in your family, you know, because you know, these thoughts kind of go through a lot of soldiers' heads in one way or yeah. another, but it's the repercussions that keep them from doing that. So we shouldn't hide the fact that there's repercussions for Absolutely. stuff like that. So can you describe some of that? Yeah, so I mean, part of it, I think, acts of simple disobedience such as my own is that you recognize there are going to be repercussions for it. Um, you're going to get punished in some manner, uh, way or form, uh, otherwise it won't be significant. But yeah, uh, so I was actually out in the field. Um, my battalion was doing what's called a live fire exercise, which is just like simulating a combat environment and practicing battle drills. And I was running that range and um, I posted everything the night before. And the next morning I get pulled aside um, by my chain of command and, uh, you know, what well, actually initially started was one of the field grade officers asked me, he's like, so I hear you're a fan of Colin Kaepernick. And I was like, well, here we go. Uh, so, uh, and so my chain of command pulled me aside, told me that I was under investigation, uh, that I had been flagged and they read me my rights, uh, told me, you know, I had the right to an attorney and so on. And if I wanted to speak now, I could, and obviously not. Um, and then they, essentially um, confined me to uh, a range tower. It's like this tall structure where you could oversee all the different operations happening uh, on the rifle range and see the movement of troops. So they pretty much made me stay in there. Um, what they told me was for my own safety. Um, <laughs> debate, we can debate that. But uh, so immediately though, you know, I have different friends and family members reaching out to me. Uh, and of course the right wing uh, hysteria quickly got whipped up, um, different publications like the Daily Caller and all these other yeah, insane info wars. Um, <laughs> uh, Alex Jones challenged me to a boxing match. <laughs> so, uh, so that, I mean, that really didn't phase me too much because that's yeah, part of the course and I fear for his own health. <laughs> But my family, of course, was quite worried, and they themselves kind of started to get different, you know, online trolls, all right types, were trying to dox me and figure out who my family members were, significant others, and so on. And um, they all had to, of course, scrub their social media presence, privatize, or, um, or lock down their accounts, you know, go on private on Twitter, whatever. Uh, and so from there, um, I was kind of left with my own thoughts and a couple of friends just reaching out to me um, and trying to talk me through this until the next day when I got to see my attorney. Uh, and he essentially told me that, you know, the, the military, uh, whether you like it or not, they're gonna win uh, in situations such as these just because of the way 
the uniform code of military justice is structured. Uh, you're essentially, uh, you know, guilty until proven innocent. Um, and, and although it's not illegal to be a communist um, in the military, and it hasn't been for years, of course, uh, they'll have other ways of um, kind of formulating their arguments to repress you. So uh, eventually I got pulled out of the field um, and I went through the different legal channels and uh, it took actually several weeks and months uh, and within that time period uh, Marco Rubio had written a letter to the uh, acting secretary of the army, um, Ryan McCarthy, uh, he can't write the script of course, uh, and he you know, said I should have my commission revoked, my degree pulled, I'm not really sure how that would work. Um, and, <laughs> You know, just calling for you know a larger investigation of other troops, and so this launched um, an investigation back at West Point itself. Uh, you know, hundreds of cadets were interviewed who were even remotely associated with me, and they were asked what their politics were, and so on. And so the cycle kind of continued. Um, and I myself was on the chopping block, and while I was waiting for my own verdict to come down. I essentially was told if I post anything else, if I say anything else, you know, they're just going to ramp up the, the punishment on me. So I kind of had to essentially just uh, bite my tongue for a while until I got officially reprimanded months later uh, in December. And then I was told um, this is going to initiate what's called a show cause board, which is where you uh, had to show why you should be retained or why you should, um, you know, just, you know, essentially leave on their terms. And so what I did is I initially tried to submit a conditional resignation uh, around late January, early February, saying that, you know, I want to leave, I completely disagree with this, um, as long as you give me nothing less than a general discharge, which is kind of like the medium uh, discharge. But they kicked that back a couple months later, said absolutely not. Uh, and so they said you could either go to what's called a board of inquiry, uh, which is like an adversarial trial, you know, one side presents their case, I present mine, or, you know, I could just leave unconditionally. So I didn't want to grovel before the Empire. I knew it would be a show trial at best. So I submitted my unconditional resignation. Um, that was accepted a few weeks after that. And then I got issued just as I expected and other than honorable uh, discharge. So. So I want to shift gears just a little bit here. Um, so we are in Chicago right now. Um, this is home to the largest concentration of JROTC students of any school district in the country. 10,000 student, uh, students are enrolled in the program. 50% are black, 45% are Latinx. Uh, but when you talk to these kids that are signed up, they can tell you very little about the last 17 years much less the history of U.S. imperialism around the world. So you signed up, you, in part, you went to West Point for an education, I think. Um, what would you tell some of these young students who are looking for an education, looking for ways out of poverty, uh, about the military, if they came and asked you, hey, what do you think? Yeah, um, it's something I thought about a lot, and we've certainly discussed it uh, in the past. Uh, I guess the, the first thing is, is that when you're talking to a teenager about these types of things, um, I don't think there's any effective argument saying like, you're too smart for this, or you can do better, that's rather condescending. Um, but I do think if you try to explain what their actual um, material relation to violence and, and power will be as a soldier, uh, and, and you kinda 
you know, get to the harsh reality uh, of what it means. I mean, of course, whether you're in combat arms or not, there's a tangible uh, chance that you could be killed. Um, but as bad as that is, uh, there's something very different about taking uh, a human life yourself, uh, let alone one that you don't really understand what cause uh, it's serving. Uh, so I think if you explain to them that, you know, if you're an infantryman uh, and you're forced uh, to kill another human being, Whose interest is that serving, and, and why were you so prepared to take that human life in the first place? Um, beyond that, even if you're not in combat arms, well, you're supplying the bullets, you're supplying the food, you're supplying uh, whatever uh, to aid in the war effort. So whether you're on the front, the so-called front lines or not, you yourself are complicit in the killing of other human beings in the pursuit of uh, United States foreign policy, and so. If you're able to articulate what that will do to you as a human being and how you'll be forced to live with that, and it's not necessarily scaremongering or trying to induce fear in them, it's speaking to what they actually will do and have to execute uh, as a soldier in the United States military, I think that at least can set them on the road um, or plant the seed for them grappling with these um, questions. Uh, so. Even if they decide to ultimately join, at least they'll be armed with some uh, degree of critical thinking wherein, where they might be faced with those situations. They might either find the courage to resist or find a way out um, in another sense. So. Okay. Uh, thanks. That's um, so maybe shifting gears just a little bit more. Um, maybe take it back to Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> We, during the Vietnam era, we had hundreds of union meetings happening within the military, within the rank and file military, happening on a daily basis. We had hundreds of incidents where soldiers were fragging and killing their officers. Um, uh, we saw people hijacking helicopters within the ranks uh, to drop propaganda flyers over military bases at the time. Uh, but we also had a large student movement that was providing a support network with coffee houses and structures to welcome soldiers who were resisting back into civilian life and, and treating, and treating them uh, with the res you know, respect that they deserve for, for, for resisting. Um, we also had the North Viet Cong resisting. You, you know, and I think those are kind of North Viet Cong and then the Afghan resistance is almost kind of the only similarity that I can see right now um, between Vietnam and the current global war on terror era is the resistance that we're seeing within the populations actually in these countries. I know it's a big question, but what do you think is kind of necessary in this all volunteer era military? Um, uh, it's actually illegal to have union meetings now within the military. You know, how do you see uh, soldiers organizing? How, I mean, you're proof that resistance is still possible um, within the, within this current structure. Um, how do we make more Spencer Rapunzel? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first off, I think uh, historically speaking. <coughs> Uh, the war resistors from Vietnam were not all draftees. In fact, a substantial portion of them were volunteers themselves. I think a lot of times the narrative that the, 
the, uh, the conscription army is the only vehicle for having war resistors is flawed and ahistorical. Um, so with that in mind, uh, yes, uh, during that time, uh, there were attempts to you know, uh, create military labor unions. Um, wow. And uh, it's in US code now, I think since 1972, that it's explicitly illegal. And on my own, um, like on the documents about my investigation and my charges, one of the things I got charged for was advocating for military labor unions. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you asked how we get more people to resist. Well, I think part of it is how we uh, term uh, anti-war and what that means. Uh, initially, after the invasion of Iraq, there was quite a substantial anti-war movement. But then, uh, five years after that, with the election of uh, Barack Obama, a lot of that dissipated. And I think part of that is when it comes to anti-war resistance, and we're seeing it today, uh, particularly within a liberal perspective, there's uh, an insistence on more of, you know, anti-Trump. In fact, in 2003, was more uh, anti-Bush rather than anti-war. And then when their uh, party or their group of people they support get into power, things change. So I think uh, articulating anti-war in terms of uh, the structural uh, phenomenon uh, we witness and how war is, you know, profitable, how it's designed to be endless, there's really no tangible objective whatsoever outside of to make it endless to continue uh, lining the pockets of Raytheon, Boeing, and so on. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. In terms of how to actually reach soldiers, though, um, I, th I think you really need to meet them where they are. No one likes being in the military in the moment. Uh, that's a key aspect. Um, Right, and I think what happens is because in the United States our civic religion is patriotism, is that you know folks who at one time had nothing but hate and they would just you know hate, they could stand being just, you know out in the field waking up for PT. When they get out, you know they're put on some kind of pedestal as a veteran. Um, and I think if we reach them and tell them that you know none of these people who uh, sing your praises now really care about you outside of serving their own political interests. That's one aspect of it. And a glaring example of that is many of the politicians who claim to be you know, staunch patriots and support the troops, they want to privatize the VA. So that's yeah. a glaring example right there. Um, aside from that, uh, reaching active duty soldiers, no one likes to deploy. Uh, no one likes to be separated from their friends and family and go and inflict violence on human beings. Even some of the true believers who claim that they they enjoy it and they relish it. Deep down, they know what they're doing. Uh, and I think, though, part of it is it's very daunting. How in the world are you supposed to say no? How in the world are you supposed to say I'm not deploying? And I think, at least from my perspective, I think that's on us to create the structures uh, and uh, the counter uh, hegemonic force, if you will, to have places <laughs> for such uh, dissident soldiers and, and military personnel. And you know, tell them that there's more to your skills as a soldier than firing a weapon. You know, there's many different social movements, many different organizations you could join uh, that could aid in actually helping people and actually fighting for freedom, for liberation, for emancipation, and not just uh, kind of playing the denouncement game. Because I really don't think that's politically viable uh, in any sense. That being said, I think we also need to do a little bit of deprogramming with soldiers too. I myself had to go through it. And it's gonna take a lot of patience, but between uh, the United States kinda having this hyper-nationalism uh, and this patriotism and 
the own uh, soldier's own conditioning from basic training and so on. We need to find a way to, to bring them in uh, or find some spaces for them to, to name their experiences and then use their knowledge uh, and uh, uh, abilities at organizing and working on a team to support uh, emancipatory movements and socialist politics. So last question before we open it up for questions. Um, so you have a bit of a profile now. Um, what do you plan on doing with kind of the leverage that you have uh, as a war resistor uh, going forward? Well, my hope is that I can use some of this profile um, to maybe go speak with other people, um, whether veterans or not, and kind of explain the, uh, the realities of war. Um, and how terrible and inhumane uh, the United States military truly is, and how you know we have 800 military bases worldwide, and we need to grapple with what uh, a socialist movement will look like that is truly anti-imperialist. Um, so centering that aspect of it. Um, secondly, I'd like to use my platform for other uh, active duty personnel that might be feeling like I do or something similarly and tell them that you know they're not alone, that there are plenty of people who are willing to take them in, uh, myself included, and we can find a way to, to get them out of the imperialist machine and uh, work towards you know fighting for a better future. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.